Where can you find criminal justice leaders who are TED speakers, CNN and MSNBC commentators, Forbes magazine features, and spent time in prison themselves? The Decarcerated Podcast is the answer. Hosted by Marlon Peterson, who was formerly incarcerated himself and has been recognized by Ebony Magazine as one of the top 100 leaders in the black community, Decarcerated gives a fresh perspective to stories that normally aren't told. Each interview sheds light on powerful transformations that are possible despite hardships. You can't help but feel inspired afterwards. To listen to current and past episodes of Decarcerated, go to marlinpeterson.com. We'll include a link in the show notes. New episodes of Decarcerated drop every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and SoundCloud. Welcome to Naklo Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. So the fall issue of the Naklo Report is now available to read online, and print copies will go out soon. Uh, this issue focuses on prisons, punishment, and policing in the Americas. So today I'm joined by report contributor Andrea Bolivar, who's a PhD candidate at Washington University in St. Louis. Andrea's article for the current issue of the report examines the experiences of trans-Latina women working in the sex industry in Chicago, and uh, how these intersections of systemic transphobia and racism, as well as the deportation industrial complex, present them with uh, unique challenges and dangers, and, and how um, these women are coping with those challenges. Andrea, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for asking. I'm great. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. So uh, I'd like to kick off just with a a brief introduction to you. Um, I know that you're working on finishing your dissertation at Washington University now. So perhaps you can tell us just a little bit about your work um, and and then kind of where you're coming from um, uh, with this article. Sure, great. Um, So this article, it draws um, from my dissertation, which I am currently finishing, knock on wood, um, and the title of my dissertation, which is always changing, um, but right now it's Somos una fantasía, which in Spanish means we are a fantasy. And this is something that my interlocutor said again and again. We are a fantasy um, because we're hypersexualized because we're transgender women, and then we're also hypersexualized because we're Latina women. So that's something I explore in the dissertation. Um, but it, the title is Somos una fantasía, Violence, Belonging, and Political Possibility in Translatina Sexual Economies of Labor. Um, So in the larger project, I seek to explore how transgender Latina women in Chicago navigate sex work, love, violence, um, while also creatively leveraging limited economic capital to support themselves and their families, both their biological families and their queer families. Um, So that's kind of the larger project, which you get a tiny glimpse into with this article. Um, And then thinking about how I got to the article, um, this is actually the very first publication um, that I've written based on my research. Um, so it's my first time kind of the research is open to the public. So I really kind of asked myself, what do I want people to know? Um, and the first thing that came to mind is like, why, why, why are so many trans women of color and trans Latinas in particular doing sex work? Um, and to be clear, I don't ask that question because like, oh my God, sex work is like inherently bad and horrible. And why would anyone want to do it? Like, that's, I'm certainly not about that. Um, but I asked this question, I think it's important. Um, because in doing so and asking why so many trans women of color engage in sexual labor, um, I think the answer very clearly shows how, as they say in the article, state sanctioned and socially acceptable forms of racism and transphobia work against trans Latina women in the U.S. that only like reinforces their political, social and economic marginalization. So really, I think the first thing I want people to know 
is that there are many types of violence that are working against trans Latina women. And it's, it's a very cyclical. So there's a very cyclical, mutually, mutually reinforcing nature that there's kind of like, there's no way out. You're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, and in, in, in the context of criminalization, um, you know, I show how sex work increases one exposure to policing and police brutality, but also this dynamic goes both ways. So also policing and police violence also encourages participation in sexual economies of labor. And then it's the same exact pattern um, with uh, the deportation industrial complex. Thank you. Yeah. So I think um, your article is really impressive and, and I think it's great that how it kind of lays out the um, various challenges and, and as you say, the cyclical pattern that these women are facing um, in Chicago. So, you know, just a few uh, for people who haven't read the article, a few of the challenges that are faced, you know, you work with a lot of anecdotal information. Um, there's, you know, one woman who is um pretty much like has a job until she has to give her identification her like state id to um the person who's been interviewing her and he realizes that she's trans because the id doesn't match up with uh the gender that she presents um and she doesn't get the job uh and then there's these other cases you know you talk about criminalization you know once someone has a record um that compounds with their gender identity and and with um their status as a as a latina woman and uh makes it even harder for them to get jobs um, and then there's a risk to their safety when they're working um, in the sex industry. So, you know, you really you um, set up these kind of uh, these anecdotes from your interviews with with your subjects that that uh, really paint a comprehensive picture of just the variety and the and the constant um, nature of these challenges. Uh, so, I mean, like I said, you, you do deal, um, chiefly with anecdotal information and, and a couple times in the article, you mentioned that there's just pretty much a total lack of statistical data, um, reliable data, uh, about trans women of color. Um, even, you know, there's, there's a lack of, uh, information as far as like crossing the border and what that process looks like for women as well as trans women specifically. Um, and then also, you know, the lack of data around sex workers um, in the States, outside, what happens to people if they get deported, um, if they are not documented. Um, so I guess, you know, what, first of all, um, what is it like working in a field like that, where there's so little data um, to work with? And then, um, you know, how do you kind of approach the issue given that lack of data? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I think on one hand, um, it, I'm forced, I'm forced to rely on, you know, what can be called like anecdotal, um, information, mm-hmm. um, which on one hand, maybe from like a statistician's perspective, um, that like begs for uh, a larger like sample of people. And like, we wish we had like more like statistics and numbers about the issues, but you know, I don't have that, so I have to focus on people's words. Um, so on one hand that can be like looked down upon, but I think it's actually like also an amazing opportunity and shows the value of qualitative um, data or qualitative mm-hmm. research um, because it, it allows for me to kind of um, get trans women of color's voices and perspectives and like honor them and like kind of celebrate them as truth. And that's not something that's ever done. Um, so on one hand, it's frustrating, um, but it's also, I think, necessary that I have to rely so much on on people's stories because uh, people's stories are important, um, especially these people's stories. And then the the question of data actually it's it's a really complicated issue. Um, so in the last few years, there's been like a greater public awareness about the number of trans people of color, especially trans women of color, who've been murdered each year. 
Um, and it's really important to recognize people's deaths um, because, you know, it also recognizes their existence, that they once existed, and also that just recognizes their humanities. Um, and there's, there are some unique challenges in recording the deaths of trans people, again, especially trans people of color. So one, um, those who are undocumented, they don't get counted. Um, mm-hmm. Those without IDs, so those who are homeless, they're le- less likely to be counted. Um, and the other issue um, is that trans people are often misgendered upon death. So they may be recorded, but like as the wrong gender or under the wrong name. So that doesn't really count as recording, as recognizing their existence and, and their humanity. Um, so that's, that's a compli- one complicated um, factor. Another confounding uh, layer is that by highlighting the death of trans people of color, um, we, we perhaps like accidentally associate, we've, we've associated them with death and violence. Um, cause that's maybe like the only thing we see, we see them on the news for. Um, so it kind of ignores, um, that trans people of color, like live and love and prosper too, in spite of all these violences. Um, which again, I think is, is what's important about ethnography, which is what I do, like just hanging out with people, getting their stories, learning about their lives is that I also see all these other aspects of their lives besides the constant negotiation of violence. Um, so this also reminds me of uh, the amazing work of this sh- Chicago-based filmmaker named Andre Perez. He's a mixed-race Puerto Rican uh, trans individual himself, um, and he was concerned about the fact that now, as a society, we're talking about trans people of color, but um, often only in the context of violence and death. So to combat that or kind of challenge this narrative, he made this incredible documentary, a documentary series, a docu-series, I guess is what it's called. Um, it's called Ben There. And it's just like kind of like it's not ethnographic. It's just like following trans people of color, like doing everyday things in their everyday lives. Um, and it shows them just kind of like living and loving because there's an assumption that trans people aren't living and loving and doing all these things that every other person um, does. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. We'll try We'll try and get a link um, to that in the show notes or get some information so that people who are interested can watch that. I mean, so, you know, your point about the documentary also reminds me before we were recording, we were talking about um, Raina Gossett and uh, her work on um, the trans uh, woman of color, Marsha P. Johnson, who was one of the activists that uh, started the Stonewall movement and how this work was recently um used without credit by a documentary filmmaker. So, I mean, maybe you can, you can comment on the, um, the different layers of marginalization at play here and how trans women of color are excluded from larger queer discourses, um, from activism. I won't go on anymore, but I'm sure you get the gist. (laughs) Yeah, this is a great point. Um, so something my interlocutors are always saying, um, is that the T is often most easily forgotten in the in the LGBT community, like mm-hmm. the lack of yeah. um, and that they're not that they're doubly marginalized by the dominant LGBT community. First, they're marginalized because they're trans, and then secondly, they're they're marginalized because they're brown. Um, and that the dominant so by dominant I mean like typically like white cisgender queer community um, has 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 for a long time appropriated the work of trans women of color. Um, so a popular example, which you're, you're alluding to, is um, how people remember the Stonewall riots. Um, mm-hmm. So in actuality, two trans women of color were really instrumental in starting them. And they were Marsha P. Johnson, who you mentioned we're talking about now in the context of this documentary and the controversy surrounding it, um, and also Silvia Rivera. Um, but the, and they're, they're kind of, a, they, by starting the Stonewall riots, they also started what is called like the larger gay liberation movement. Um, but they're not recognized and like celebrated in the same way as some white cisgender gay men are. 
Um, so the conversation that people are now having around the documentary about uh, Marsha P. Johnson is actually just like a, the newest manifestation of critiques that women of color have long been making against the the larger, um, the dominant LGBTQ movement. Um, and just uh, just another example of how um, the work of uh, trans women of color has been kind of stolen and used and um, people have really benefited from it. So what people are asking now um, about the documentary um, about Marsha P. Johnson is that like, you know, who gets to profit from her story? Because it's not trans women of color. They're not profiting mm-hmm. from it. So in the context of your work in Chicago, within that category of trans women of color who are who are doing sex work, there are varying levels of proximity to criminalization, um, especially when it comes to who's documented and who's not. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on how the immigration and the deportation industrial complex play into the work that you've done, especially because there's a kind of popular narrative that with the with the entrance of the, of the Trump administration, things have gotten worse. Um, but the sense that I've gotten from talking to you is that that's not really the case, that stuff hasn't really changed very much on the ground for these women. Yeah, um, I think that for folks who are perhaps not used to having their privileges and their freedom, quote unquote, freedom um, challenge, the current president is kind of like a huge wake up call and like mm-hmm. really terrifying in new ways. But for those of us who are used who are used to these things, it's not it's not surprising and it's also not so different from our typical everyday lives. So to be clear, um, I also don't want to underestimate the gravity of the election. And in fact, um, the night after the election results were announced. The Trans Lifeline, um, and the Trans Lifeline is um, a crisis hotline primarily for transgender individuals. Um, and I have a number here, actually. It's 877-565-8860. Um, so the night after the election, the Trans Lifeline, um, in that one night, it got more calls than it typically does get in one week. Um, so on one hand, the election sent a very clear message to non-normative individuals. Um, and we all knew that violence is against us will will have and they will increase. At the same time, my interlocutors, while they're like outraged and scared, they also said um, that, well, you know, the law in this country was never for us. And in fact, mm-hmm. it's always been working against us this whole time. Um, so in our day to day lives, we won't see too much of a difference. Um, some things will be harder, like he is set to increase deportations. But I mean, things were never easy. So, for example, there were also record high deportations under the Obama, Obama administration. So, um, yeah, things, things are kind of business as usual when, for my interlocutors. So as you're wrapping up your dissertation and, um, you know, keeping in touch with your contacts, um, I'm, I'm curious just kind of what, where specifically you'll be looking, um, to see how things develop, um, whether, uh, it's in terms of immigration or, um, this data question, uh, looking at advocacy work, um, you know, where where will you be looking to see where things are going? Um, is there anywhere that you would want to direct uh, listeners' gaze? Um, and then also, you know, for people who are interested in helping out um, these women or people who are advocating for their interests, um, obviously we'll include links to that documentary and um, the Trans Life uh, hotline number in the show notes. But if there's anything else that comes to mind, um, we definitely want to include that. Yeah, so something that I don't um, write about in this piece for NACLA, um, but is another layer of marginalization, unfortunately, um, that I do write about a lot in the dissertation, is that I include um, 
uh, trans Latina individuals who are black. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about Latinxes, we imagine the Latinx person as brown, um, which is interesting because by imagining them as brown, we're imagining we're assuming that Latinxes can't be black when in fact there are more black folks in Latin America than they are in the U.S. Um, we just like don't know that because you know there's kind of like racism and the discursive ways we're imagining um, Latinx people. So there's a lot of anti-black racism in the Latinx community, and of course here in the U.S. more broadly. Um, and then also when we think about the immigrants that are coming to the U.S., um, in, La- in many Latin American countries, black folks are the poorest, so they actually can't even make it across the border. So I talk about, um, you know, what is it like to be um, a trans Latina woman who's also black? Um, so that's a, a really important uh, layer that we need to think about. And then I'm going to keep exploring as I uh, go forward in my research. Um, and the other thing, which um, I'm super excited to keep following, which I mentioned at the very end. Um, of my article is that there's just really incredible activism going on. And again, it's not new. It's been going on forever. Um, but one one group that I give a shout out to that I've worked closely with and will continue to do so and really excited about their work is the Trans-Latina Coalition, which is a nationwide organization um, that works around the country fighting for trans-Latino rights um, and all sorts of other things. So um, I'm excited to see what um, things they're up to, and as well as other trans-Latina activists are up to um, around the country. Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be able to talk to all the Naclistas out there. That was Andrea Bolivar, PhD candidate at Washington University. If you haven't subscribed to NACLA Radio on iTunes, you should do that, and be sure to rate and review us, which helps more people find the podcast. NACLA is also on the web at facebook.com slash NACLA, and on Twitter at NACLA. NACLA Radio is produced by me. Our editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Horocho. Oh.